We have a national housing deficit of about 17 million. And from the data, we learned that about maybe 30 or 40 percent of that 17 million is in Lagos. So Lagosians have, you know, a serious housing deficit. But then again, when you go to the highbrow areas of Ikoyi, Victoria Island, like you see a lot of vacant housing. So the problem has to do with what bracket of the housing market is facing this deficit. And that comes the issue of affordability. What kind of housing are we building and who can afford it? Welcome to Ideas on Trapped, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. Ideas on Trapped is a podcast that examines the role of ideas in a political economy. It's also a podcast about spreading ideas on growth, development, and progress. This is Ideas on Trapped. My guest today is Dr. Taibat Lawansin, who is a professor of urban planning at University of Lagos. You're welcome. Thank you. Lagos is generally perceived and described as a dysfunctional city. Do you agree with that assessment? I wouldn't say Lagos is a dysfunctional city. I would just say that Lagos is a complex city. Dysfunctional, you know, points to a lot of negative undertones. But I will say Lagos is a complex city in which everyone, you know, the population, 20 million plus, are all trying or jostling for space in the quest for livelihoods and a better life. So for me, complex will be a more suitable word. So if there is some kind of attempt at responsible urban planning in Lagos, how do you think some of the problems that the city faces can be mitigated? You know, there is urban planning in Lagos. As it is with other spheres of governance, the major challenge is that the governance framework is unable to cater for the extensive population. So the infrastructure in the city is such that can accommodate comfortably 8 to 10 million people. And we have a population that is definitely double that. So the challenge is that the urban planning framework and the governance framework is stretched beyond its capacity because of the population. And the issue now is that the population keeps growing and the capacity of government to manage that population or provide a good life for the residents, you know, the challenge continues to grow. Okay, so would you say that there is need for some form of population control measures in Lagos in terms of control of migration? Or should Lagos be incorporated into some form of national plan in terms of developing other cities and urban centers that can attract the excess population inflow in Lagos? Well, I've always advocated for a special status for Lagos. Lagos used to be the capital of the country, and by the time the capital was moved to Abuja, a lot of the growth indicators or the development indicators did not move. Lagos is the center of excellence by its name, 
It's also a center of economic vibrancy, you know, the economic capital of the country as it were. And that hasn't changed, you know, beyond even the country. It extends as far as the West African coast. So while migration is something that has been happening all along and there is really no way you can control it, why do we have the migration, the high influx of people into Lagos? Some of them have to do with issues in other parts of the country, like the insecurity in the north. You know, so people are moving in because of safety and all of that. And Lagos is in a federation. And in the federation, you have certain rights as a Nigerian citizen. So I don't know how population control can be achieved in a federation. What I think is that Lagos should be given a special status because of the challenges she faces as a sponge, you know, for the entire country and the West African subregion. That's one. The second one is that we really need to look at the urbanization issue from a national development context. It's not enough for the government to identify all local government um, headquarters as urban areas. Specific intentional programs and interventions must be made for urban development across the country. We need to have some measure of redistribution of resources, redistribution of skills, and we really need to take urban governance very, very seriously. People are coming to Lagos in search of livelihoods, you know, and then the question is, why are they leaving where they are? They are leaving where they are because the livelihoods there are not secure or they are not sufficient, all right? So the issue of, you know, migration or population control goes down to the issue of national development and decentralization of resources and opportunities for the people. One thing that also interests me is the issue of housing in Lagos. Housing uh, appears to be quite expensive and the available housing cannot really meet the demand. Now, would you say that it's an issue of supply in terms of the development of housing is not fast enough to meet the demand or there are other bottlenecks in terms of land titling and property rights issues um housing is a multifaceted issue we have issues of affordability availability acceptability quality you know, the fundamental thing in the context of Lagos is what type of housing are we building? We have a national housing deficit of about 17 million. And from the data, we learned that about maybe 30 or 40 percent of that 17 million is in Lagos. So Lagosians have, you know, a serious housing deficit. But then again, when you go to the highbrow areas of Ikoyi, Victoria Island, like you see a lot of vacant housing. So the problem has to do with what bracket of the housing market is facing this deficit. And that comes the issue of affordability. What kind of housing are we building and who can afford it? That's one. With regards to availability, the types of housing that people who are starting off their lives or people who are earning meager incomes can afford, who is building it, what's their approach towards it. Most of that type of housing is being done by landlords. 
and it's done on an incremental basis and it's done in such a manner that they you know are building these houses to use to secure their future a manner of um, pension plan you know in a manner of speaking so for them they have to get something reasonable out of it particularly since they have built out of usually their pension or their savings or they take a loan from the bank or the cooperative society so the cost of construction is quite high and how do we mitigate that one of the reasons why the cost of construction is high is because even within the estates people are self-provisioning these neighborhood facilities water electricity the roads the drainage and all of that and it gets to be added to the cost of the housing units so we really need to kind of look again at what is making housing expensive another issue is using materials that are sourced from abroad so all those need to be decoupled that is why housing is expensive and when we look at the deficit again we then say what about the quality of housing the man who lives in a slum lives in a house we can then say that is it decent housing is it habitable housing is it fit for purpose all right in the context of things when you're looking at housing oftentimes good houses in bad environments are not counted so we need to look at issues of urban upgrading we need to look at issues of solving the drainage problem and what really causes all these things is that people go into communities to build before services are provided and those services are meant to be provided by the government using planning standards or being guided by the operative development plans but the city is growing much faster than the government's capacity like i said earlier to provide these services but people are coming in and people have home ownership aspirations so they continue to build and they continue to grow and then the fundamental question of who are we building for remember i said earlier that most of the housing that is going on now is being done by landlords the ones that are being done by developers are out of the reach of most people for the reasons i stated earlier so the the housing question needs to be fundamentally looked at what are the imperatives for mass housing and how can we get it done right at a cost that people can afford the mortgage market which should be the natural recourse to supplying funding for mass housing the mortgage market is quite stifled and that needs to be rejigged you know we need to look at it and the only way we can make housing affordable and accessible to more people is to expand the opportunities to get housing finance and that is um through the mortgage system working hand in hand with the developers the environment is changing the new fha chairman seems to be you know working towards that aspiration but it's early days yet but the fundamental thing is that we need to move from this one man building three flats and all of that to actually producing mass housing in an affordable manner I know you've been even though I haven't really seen any of your arguments in detail but I know you are somewhat of a critic of projects like Equal Atlantic what do you think such initiatives are missing in terms of delivering mass housing on a scale that matters 
Okay. Um, yes, I am a critic of those grandiose projects, and I call them aspirational projects. They are not a response to the housing problem. They are a response to the governance security problem and our aspiration to fall into this world-class city, whatever that means. A co-Atlantic city is built or is designed with the diaspora and high net worth Nigerians. And we know that there are only so many of those people. So committing such amount of funds to, you know, meeting the needs or an assumed need of so many of so many people, I think is fundamentally flawed. All right. If there are 20 million people in this city and over 60 percent of them live below the poverty line, then providing housing should be looking at the fundamentals. How is the man on the street going to get a place to sleep at night? And committing the amount of resources and government support to these aspirational, luxury type, resort type housing estates, I think is a problem. And one of the consequences of this is that we're going to continue to live in a segregated city where the rich are behind their gated communities and they cannot come out because the angry poor are out at the gate. You understand? So we really need to open up the space. We need to open up the space and make sure that opportunities are available for all citizens of the city, whether rich or poor at their own level. So it's not a problem for those who want to live in Eco-Atlantic or who believe Eco-Atlantic is an ideal. It's not a problem at all. But hand in hand with the development of Eco-Atlantic, we should see 1,000 mass housing, two bedroom, three bedroom, you know, for government workers, for policemen, for people who are earning within 100 to 200,000 Naira a month. You understand? So it's all right to do the luxury housing, but it is also important to simultaneously provide for the majority of the people who live in precarious housing. As you know, we are still dealing with the fallout from the pandemic. And uh, Lagos, like most other cities that are economic centers, was hit very hard. So what are the patterns you observed from your research in terms of adaptability and how Lagosians generally dealt with that crisis? Okay, um, I think Lagos was prepared. They started well, and I guess that was because of, you know, the experience we had with the Ebola in 2014. So we had the framework for dealing with such an issue We had the basic framework and then, you know, the commissioner for health was intentional and the governor gave him every support. So we started off well. There was information dissemination. There was contact tracing and all of that. It started off well. And um, fortunately for us, somewhat, it started from international travelers, people who are generally at middle income levels. So it was easier to trace them. And then at the beginning, there was a lot of distrust and there are lots of people who still deny the pandemic. It started to get a bit out of hand after the lockdown was announced. And why was that the case? The fact that many people live on daily wages and so they have to go out to feed. 
if they don't go out, then their families will starve. And when the palliatives started to be distributed, they were not targeting the people who were most at need. And that was because there was not sufficient data to capture them. The government did not know where those people are. They responded with the palliative distribution based on the data at their own disposal. And also because the way government operates, they do not actually recognize many of those who live in informal communities. And those are the people who were particularly impacted by the economic and social consequences of the lockdown. The disease itself did not affect so many people. You know, we're fortunate maybe because of the weather, maybe because of the system that was put in place, maybe because of the natural resilience, but we've been quite fortunate with the spread of the disease. But the social and the economic consequences have been more dire, all right? And with regards to food security, with regards to rising prices of food, with regards to job losses and things like that. And that is primarily because the government simply doesn't have data for people in those places, in many of those places. And which brings me to the need for more partnerships between government and civil society actors. During the lockdown, we realized that civil society, NGOs and faith-based organizations were more effective in supporting people who were at the lowest rung of the ladder because they know them, they've been working with them, they've been supporting them before the pandemic. So it's important that government, you know, does what it ought to do, but it's also important that government partners with those who are working in between the cracks. And that's where the civil society actors curate data. Because to the best of my knowledge, Lagos State operated using the data at their disposal. The only challenge was that the data was somewhat flawed and not fit for this particular purpose. And that was why there were lags in the distribution of the palliatives. But Ocean's been resilient people have bounced back and are trying to make, you know, the best of the situation as the economy starts to reopen. One other problem that Lagos faces, which is quite a significant challenge, is traffic congestion. So, and you already talked about how the infrastructure is stretched and there might be governance and fiscal challenges to delivering the infrastructure that will cater to the ever-growing population of Lagos. So I want to ask you, do you think policies that have been tried in other admittedly more developed cities like congestion pricing, do you think they will work in Lagos or there will be challenges with their implementation? Okay, so take congestion charges, for example. It's been um, implemented in the UK, in London. You can't go into central London with your car. You get to pay higher. But what happens is that there are alternatives. You, you don't go into central London with your car, but there is a train that comes past your bus stop every seven minutes. There's a bus that comes every 12 minutes. You can choose to go by bicycle, you know, so there are other opportunities, there are other alternatives to taking your car. The issue we have in Lagos now is that the public transportation takes fewer people than it ought to. 
So issues of congestion charges may be reasonable, you know, in high traffic areas like Lagos Island and all of that, but are only feasible after alternatives have been opened up. So what are these alternatives? We have the light trail that's coming into the city center. If that is implemented, if that starts to run, yes, the issue of congestion charges may come in. We have the largely untapped waterways. The waters of Lagos are empty. It should be full of boats and ferries moving people from one area to the other. There is nowhere in Lagos that you cannot get to by water within 30 to 40 minutes. And that's something that we're not doing enough of. So that also needs to open up. There needs to be these alternatives before you can, you know, even make these stringent things. And now with the pandemic, people are afraid to go out in groups. The issue of physical distancing comes in. Somebody who has been using the BRT, for example, now doesn't want to be cooped up with 30 other people and chooses to take his car out for his personal safety. You can't blame that kind of person because he's doing it for personal safety. So until these alternatives are put into place and um, adequate communication and the reasons behind certain decisions are out in the public domain, then those kinds of interventions or those kinds of approaches will just be seen as not being inclusive. It's important to achieve development, but it's also important to achieve development in a manner that is respectful of the rights of the citizens and is inclusive, recognizes that people belong to different socioeconomic categories and also recognizes that people have different life experiences and ensure that at every point in time, the rights and privileges of citizens are taken into consideration. So take, for example, disability rights. Apart from the BRT, even within the BRT, not many bus stops that are being constructed are wheelchair compliant. Not many road signs have the Braille component. So these citizens who have rights as much as the next person, they are not even being thought about or catered for in the development of the city. So all these things go hand in hand. The first thing is to recognize that you want to make things work. The second thing is to make sure that you are making things work for everybody. And so the scale may not be as high or as large as one intends to, but things must be done in a manner that is inclusive and is respectful of the rights of um, all citizens. Lagos is, uh, amongst other things, the entertainment capital of Nigeria, the cultural capital of Nigeria, and it can definitely hold its own on the global stage. From what we've heard from our parents and through history, it used to have a very vibrant nightlife that seemed to be, I, I don't want to say dying, but petering out a bit. What do you think is responsible for that? Is it insecurity or gentrification in terms of housing? Or what, what do you think is responsible for that? Okay. Um, Lagos has a vibrant entertainment scene, but the only thing is that the entertainment is kind of skewed towards a particular sector of the society. And that's where the problem comes. We also have a lot of privatization of resources. So take, for example, the bar beach. 
The Babich used to be a weekly mecca of sorts for most Lagos families. So after church on Sunday, you go with your cooler, with your family to spend the afternoon on the beach. You can't do that anymore. Number one, the beach doesn't exist. It is now a co-Atlantic city. But there are other beaches in the city. For all these other beaches, you need to have some money before you can even approach because you have to pay to enter, pay for your parking, pay for your coolers and all of that. So the common wealth of the city has been privatized. And so even the natural recreation facilities, one is not able to access them. The unprecedented urban growth also was a challenge where a lot of the parks and green areas were taken over for residential purposes. Over the last 10 years, since um, Fashola's regime, Lagos has been deliberate about capturing some of those parks and gardens back. But there's also the challenge of access. Some of them are free. Some of them you have to pay to use the services. And many of them are time bound. So after a certain period of the day, you cannot access those um, services. And that's a problem. The other thing is with regards to sporting facilities. A lot of the sporting facilities are also, you know, they they have financial um, implications and people are poor. It's difficult for you to divert the money that you want to use to eat, to pay a gate fee to access the beach or the stadium or things like that. And so where do people do their entertainment? They are watching DSTV or they are doing the pools betting, you understand? which has serious social implications and economic implications, or they have to indulge in things that are not wholesome. So that's the problem, you know. And then we have also the security situation where people feel unsafe when they go out after some time. One, because there is no infrastructure to support nightlife. How many of our street lights are working? How many of our policemen are going out in the evenings, you know, to see that people are safe and all of that? And many of these nightclubs that even currently exist, where are they located? Many of them are located in the business areas, like Mm -hmm. on Victoria Island, on Aolo Road. So these are places that are not easily accessible except you have a vehicle. So it takes you back to the infrastructure issues. If a city is going to have a 24-hour economy, then there must be infrastructure to support that economy. In Lagos, everything that is government-related, you know, that is public, institutional-related, shuts down at five. Mm. So how do you expect life to go on when there are no enabling environment for life to go on in the night? So that's where that challenge is. And, but with regards to the music, to the dramatic arts and all of that, there is a resurgence of that coming up, but the infrastructure to support it in a way that triggers economic growth and is beneficial to more residents is where some more work needs to be done. I think um, the former governor did something called community theatres and the constructed small theatres and cinema kind of places in five different local governments. But I don't know whether they have started operation and what the nature of their activities look like. So my final question to you, which is a bit of a tradition on the show, is what's one big idea, and this could be about anything, urban planning or any other thing that you're researching or interested in, 
what's the one big idea you would like to see spread everywhere and you like to see people adopt or carry in their head or implement? So for me now, something that really bothers me, this is not even from an academic perspective, this is just from somebody who's living in the city, it has to do with the waste, particularly the plastic waste. The, our waste management structure is not robust enough to cover everything that needs to be done. But people are not helping matters. Like Lagosians are dirty. You know, they are throwing things out of the window. They are not putting their rubbish in the bin and things like that. They are not sorting their waste. And the plastic waste is particularly, you know, um, is particularly stressful. The circular economy has come in with regards to the plastic bottles. And so companies like WeCyclers and, you know, other recycling companies are turning this plastic into something that has economic value. So that's working. But those foam plates are everywhere. They are blocking the drains. They are making a mess of everywhere. And I think we need to take personal responsibility first. You know, how are you working with your waste? What kind of waste are you generating? How are you sorting it out? How are you getting it into the bin? And how are you getting it into the llama trucks and all of that? That's the first thing. And then for the Loma people, how are they sorting it and making economic value out of it? But for me right now, we need to do waste sorting at home and we need to take personal responsibility for keeping our environments clean. I think a lot of the drainage problem in Lagos, apart from the really structural engineering ones, can be mitigated if people were more intentional about their waste management practices. Do you think there needs to be strong regulatory or punitive response from the government in terms of this problem? Um, I think the first thing has to be massive orientation, reorientation towards living a cleaner life. Many people don't even know that it is wrong. Many people don't know the consequences of some of their messy habits. So the government has to come out and, you know, educate public reorientation, let people understand that throwing that bottle of Coke or something out of the window of the downfall has implications for the quality of fish that we're going to eat. You know, if that bottle gets into the water, the kinds of chemicals that will be produced, and getting into the fish, the quality of the fish that we eat, the quality of the food that we get and things like that. They need to understand that those seemingly careless waste practices have a direct link to the incidence of flooding in their neighborhood. The other day, there was a picture of a Kobe crescent in Surya, and it was full of those parks. Mm. All right. And probably the government needs to enforce, you know, they need to, where are these products coming from? What are the alternatives? I know in the UK now, when you go to eat at these um, restaurants, if you don't ask for cutlery, you don't get. And they are using recyclable materials like easily biodegradable materials like bamboo, like wood. They are asking you to come in with your straws and things like that. Some of them are charging you for plastic bags in the supermarket. In Germany, for example, you get a trade-off for every plastic bottle you bring into the shops. You understand, as long yeah. as you bring an empty bottle, you get some credits. In the UK, your recyclables are weighed and you get a debit. 
you get a discount on your monthly bill for you know those recyclables so we need a lot of those kinds of incentives in the waste management sector then we need a lot of public reorientation before the issue of infractions contraventions and punitive enforcement can come into play it's been great talking to you thank you very much dr taiba thank you toby you can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms apple podcast google podcast spotify and Red. or you can just subscribe directly at our website ideasontrap.com thank you and see you next time